Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. White parents say they want their kids to go to integrated schools. But when they're given the power to choose, schools actually tend to become more segregated. Part of the reason for that is that parents are ranking things like school safety and academic quality higher than integration. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll dig into a recent report on school choice, and we'll talk to a mother who says a local push for school integration has disadvantaged her child. My kid was not allowed to go there because we did not win a lottery. Lots of little white families were able to send their children. Plus, a soldier exposed to secret nuclear weapons tests during the Cold War returns to college at age 83. I dropped out of college to go on the road playing music, and I like to complete what what I've started. And we go ice climbing at a secret spot in southern New England. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. We're starting off the show today with a conversation about race and education, and we'll begin with a former student from Boston Latin School. Three years ago, students took to social media. They were protesting racism and social inequities at the prestigious Honors School. And so as part of WBUR's series Lessons Learned, we're going to hear from one of the former leaders of the hashtag Black at BLS movement. Her name's Meggie Noel, and here she is reflecting on her experience as a minority at a mostly white and Asian school. It was our lives that were just being so engulfed with racial tension at that time. It was Trayvon Martin. It was Mike Brown. It was Eric Garner. It was every time we looked at our phones and on social media and all of our discussions, every time we heard on the radio, it was another black life that was being lost. And then we came to school and it was silence. It's still so disheartening when you feel that you can't do anything or you feel that you're stuck and you're not able to really mobilize, especially, you know, you're too young, you know, there's nothing you can really do or, you know, got to think about next steps and education and all this, all these things kind of whirling around that are just trying to push you down in a sense. When you're in the minority at school, it's this constant environment of self-doubt. You're already doubting yourself because there's no one else who looks like you. You're already doubting yourself because you don't have teachers who look like you. You don't have those role models. You don't have those guys. We had to fight to ensure that our voices would remain at the center point. So we said, okay, what do we want to do? What do we want to say? It's recording? Yeah. All right. Let's get it. Hi. Had some notes, <laughs> literally on like the back of a quiz or something, like a piece of scrap paper, and just put up the phone. We said, okay, well, here we go. Hashtag Black at BLS when you're the only black student in your AP US history course, and when slavery comes up, they all turn to you. We were so vulnerable 
and honest and just telling our truth. In one take, we just we just put it out. Stay proud and keep striving for black excellence. And in our head, we're like, our friends will tweet out, you know, maybe some alumni will get involved too and, you know, something that happened. And something did happen. <laughs> something pretty big did happen. Oh, then the media. <laughs> Boston Globe, yeah, New York Times, Essence, Boston Herald. It just spiraled into a life of its own. It was a life-changing experience because it, it forced us all to realize that we have a voice. And if we use it correctly, we can absolutely make a change and make an impact. We all right by Kendrick Lamar. That was the song I remember senior year. We love that message that no matter what was going on around us, we knew that if we had each other, like we were going to be all right. We still made a difference. During college, you know, I felt that there was a time where I lost my voice. So it goes to Spelman, it's an all-women's institution. And I said, oh, cool, I'm here. I'm going to find sisterhood. I'm going to find community. And that wasn't the reality. You know, life hit. My mom lost her job. My grandmother passed. I was struggling with depression. I was dealing with a sexual assault. And at the end of every semester, I was just struggling to keep up. Coming from a situation where... My voice had such an impact and I didn't even realize it. It was such a hard contrast and it was such a weird transition. Eventually, I, had, I ended up taking, you know, a semester off and, you know, had to continue rebuild myself, you know, at home, at my core community. I was like, wow, this feels like high school again. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> but I needed that. It wasn't until I had those moments and those experiences that I was able to kind of get back on track and um, walk in my purpose. I just, you know, had to remind myself the importance of my voice, the importance of my own legacy, the importance of speaking up. Meggie Noel is a senior at Spelman College in Atlanta. That story was produced by WBUR's Carrie Young. A 2016 federal investigation of Boston Latin School found a pattern of race-based harassment and discrimination. And since then, the school has instituted new cultural proficiency training, launched an official student feedback system, and now offers an African-American studies course. A new report says the majority of parents in the U.S. want schools that are racially and economically integrated. But in districts where parents have school choice, schools actually tend to become more segregated. The report is from the Making Caring Common Project at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. Eric Torres is co-author of the report and a Ph.D. student at Harvard. And Eric, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So the title of the report is, Do Parents Really Want School Integration? So, so let me put that question to you. Do they? Yeah, it's a complicated question, and I think reasonable people can actually look at our data and come to different conclusions about it. Um, on the one hand, across race, class, gender, and a political affiliation, parents are saying they support school integration in principle. Um, and not only that, but majorities of parents of all races and both Democrats and Republicans say that states and districts should be taking action to ensure integration. 
Um, on the other hand, uh, as as you've noted, uh, this is other research, not our own, shows that in districts where parents uh, have uh, unrestricted choices about the schools they send their kids to, we often see increases in segregation. Yeah. So, so your report found that white parents were behaving actually in the opposite way than they said they wanted to, and they were picking schools with more affluent white students. Do you have a sense of why? Yeah. So our report um, didn't look at the choices that parents were actually making. We, we, our report investigated parents' priorities and their thinking about integration. And it's through the synthesis of other research that shows um, the decisions that, that parents are actually making gives us some reason to believe that um, when, when given these unrestricted choices, parents tend to choose whiter, more affluent schools. Um, and I think part of the reason for that, uh, and it's actually consistent with our data, is that parents are ranking things like school safety and academic quality higher than integration. We ask parents to name their, their top three priorities when they're considering a school for their children. About 80% of parents say academic quality, um, enrichment activities, and safety also figure highly. Only about 8% are saying that uh, you know, racial or class integration is among the Im- most important factors for, dis- for choosing a school. And so when the rubber hits the road, oftentimes parents see these two things as in conflict. They say, I, I would like other things being an e- equal, a school that's uh, integrated for my children, but um, these other priorities are more important, and I tend to see schools that are integrated as being academically inferior. So if they're prioritizing things like school quality, are they using metrics that are that are good? How are they even making that determination? Yeah, it's a great that's a great question, and it's really complicated. Um, you know, parents have available to them a wide array of data about schools now more so than ever. Um, they can look online and look at school report cards. Um, the issue is that oftentimes these report cards tend to focus on a relatively narrow conception of what constitutes a high quality school. You know, namely one that um, has. Uh, high uh, standardized scores um, or an academic performance. Um, parents are also talking to uh, primarily members of their own sort of social and peer circles. And in those circles, uh, for white affluent parents, for example, uh, rumors and biases can propagate and go unchecked. Um, oftentimes, parents may find that a school gains a reputation in one of these small circles, but were they to go visit it themselves, they would find that it's an excellent place. Um, and they might not see there being that conflict between their priority for uh, high-quality academic environments and uh, integration. So it's kind of this mix of, you know, we'd like to we'd like to pick a school that integrates, but it's not our top priority. And then there's a mix in there of just like inherent bias about schools that's not grounded in facts. I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. So this may seem like kind of a simple question, but as an education researcher, what are the benefits of school integration? I I think the research shows that particularly for low-income students, there are a lot of academic benefits. Um, Some of those have to do with the fact that schools which have higher proportions of middle and upper income kids tend to be better resourced and better supported. Um, There there are also some benefits for low-income students to having a, a peer network that contains more affluent um, middle and upper income students as well. 
There's also a great benefit sort of socially and emotionally and civically to going to school with children who are different uh, from you in a variety of different ways. And that's true both for low-income students, for high-income students, for white students, for black students. Um, that's true for everybody. So for parents who are making this claim, you know, I, I, I want to send my kid to a more integrated school and they really mean it, how can they actually make this happen? How can they make it a, t- a, t- a top priority or should they? Uh, we definitely think they should. I mean, we think this is important for the country as a whole. It's important for um, your kids, for other kids. I think a, a, a society in which everybody is sort of engaged in a civic mission together is is going to fare better in the long run. Uh, and I think in order to get parents past some of these uh, misconceptions, um, they can look at the data, of course, look at all the available data, but also take a visit to a school you're considering. Don't just rely on talk amongst your your peer circle. I want to just take a, a wider view for a second um, before I let you go and, and just acknowledge that parent choice is one factor getting in the way of school integration. Um, can you talk about some of the other barriers? This is a really important point. And while our research focuses on parents' thinking, uh, we don't want to suggest that this is either the only or the most important thing to think about when we're trying to achieve integration. There are big structural components here, too. Residential segregation is a huge barrier in many communities. Um, I think it, we would be wrong to, to put this all on individual parents. Um, we, need, we need to think more broadly, too. Eric Torres is a co-author of the report and a Ph.D. student at Harvard. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Hartford, Connecticut has been held up by researchers and U.S. education officials as a model for school integration. The city is predominantly black and Latino and mostly surrounded by white suburbs. Now, more than two decades ago, in a court case called Chef versus O'Neill, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled that black and Latino children in Hartford were at a huge disadvantage because their schools were racially segregated. As a result, magnet schools were built in the Hartford area as a way to voluntarily integrate schools. Admissions were, and actually still are, decided by lottery. The rule was 25% of the student body had to be white or Asian. Since then, thousands of city and suburban students have gone to the magnet schools. But Kamora Harrington's son, Isaiah, is not one of them. She says she entered him into the school lottery multiple times, but he was never chosen. Harrington is a community advocate, and she joins us to talk about her experience with school choice as a black mother in Hartford. Kamora, it's so nice to have you in the studio. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Really appreciate that. So your son, Isaiah, is eight now. Um, Where did you want him to go to school originally? I wanted him at Mary Hooker. It's an environmental sciences magnet school? Yes. And when Isaiah popped up, as we're getting ready to look at what pre-K was going to look like, And literally directly across the street is Mary Hooker. So every day I'm looking at the school that's got the big, the rainforest up in front that you can see, and then the gardens on the side and the wheelbarrows. And you can see all of these places where kids are doing experiments and they're playing and they're touching dirt. And I've got this dirt kid who loves experiments, right? So that's where I wanted him to go. And we never made the lottery. So he never got to go there. And how many times did you enter the lottery and try to get him into that school? (sighs) Every single year. So... Three years in a row, um, and this year we haven't even bothered with the lottery. It's just, I'm tired, I'm over it. One of the major goals of the Chef case was to offer better schools with more resources to black and Latino children in Hartford. 
um, and it's been almost 24 years since that court decision. When you're talking about this case with your friends and your neighbors in Hartford, what is the mood like? Chef versus O'Neill is one of those great places of hindsight is 2020 and understand the second you think you won something, they're figuring out how to screw it up and how you didn't win anything. Isaiah goes to a school that is underfunded. The resources are not there. This morning on the way over here, we were talking a little bit. It's like, you know, no, I want you to go to the environmental sciences school. You didn't go to that school. You love science. What are some of the science things that you do? This year, my child is in second grade. I really, really, really hope that there's a bunch of suburban parents who are preparing for the science fair right now who hear that the only science experiment that my child has done this year is watching ice turn into water. They put ice cubes in a baggie, they taped it on the window, and then calculated how long it took it to melt. We live directly across the street from the environmental science school. My kid was not allowed to go there because we did not win a lottery. Lots of little white families were able to send their children. I got to every morning deal with this traffic jam outside of my home because they were driving their kids in, knowing that over the summer, knowing that in the spring, when they were at home just figuring out what they were going to do, they live in towns with perfectly adequate elementary schools. And their choice, their choice is to sit up and look at these different brochures and decide, do I want my child going to the neighborhood school? Or what about this school with science? You know what? Let's try it and see how it works. That's what their situation is. My situation is, I really hope that A, not too many white families apply because if too many of them are in there, then there's not a space for my kid. But that enough of them apply because if not enough of them apply, then my child going in there, my beautiful melanated black child, will throw off the racial mix in such a way that it will be bad. So somehow if you've got too many black kids in the classroom, you're not achieving diversity in the way that they seem to think that we should be achieving diversity. So in your experience, it's like this this goal for integration just meant that white families get choice and Period. continue to get choice. And you are not ex- experiencing that at Period. All. And we solidify that they come before us. Yeah. And so aside from their choice, it's like let's get down to the fundamental level. Here in America, we talk about white supremacy and what that looks like and how horrible it is. But if your four-year-old knows that they can go wherever they want and my four-year-old can't, then how are we not creating a world where white supremacy is? You, you can't move past that. You can't. What do you think would be – what would be a system that would be ideal for you? Like what, what would be good? This, this, is, this is always the hard question for me because it can sound very much like I'm trying to come up with some black nationalist whatever. And in maybe, maybe in some ways I am. We understand and know that children learn best from people who come from the same background. That's been researched over and over and over again. Rather than moving my children out to say go learn with white people because they're better – I would have loved to have seen the money be poured into the schools existing in the way they are. I would love to see the neighborhood schools built and watch our children interact with their communities and their neighborhoods. Rather than come up with this ridiculous idea that desegregation is the goal, grown-ups don't believe that. You do not see the people in Simsbury going to meetings and saying, it's so sad that there's no black people living here. We've got to do something to make black people live here with us. They're not doing that. They're balancing their budgets on our children. They are pretending as if having their children go to school with diverse children of color. There are some air quotes going on with that nonsense. Um, 
but that that somehow creates a place where they can appear to be wonderful, progressive, accepting people that white folks in Connecticut want to believe that they are. You know, I think about my childhood. There was just this tinge and this understanding that white was right, and if you're black and in white space, you better be grateful for it. That was 40 years ago, and here today, we, again, going going right back to you can win the lottery and you can, can go to the good school, or you can lose and go to your neighborhood school. Do you feel like there's this tension that you feel in yourself, like there's part of you that wants your son to go to the magnet school, right? And then there's also the part of you that feels like this is just, you know, white people saying, I invite you to win the lottery, to 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 live life the way I say I should. Like, is there a tension in you there or no? No. <laughs> no. 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 There's an anger that that's the option. Yeah. There's a rage that no one thought that the neighborhood schools were worth it. Did you enter the lottery in the first place because you felt like, um, you know, I want I want the school with more resources? Yeah. We entered the lottery because that's what we had. That is what we have. If he gets into this school, he has the ability to have better outcomes than his neighbors just because somehow he was picked to go to this special school. So the disparity of the entire process disgusts me. Do you think that will you will you try the lottery again? At this point no because he's aware of it. Mm. And and I'm I'm completely serious when I say this built-in understanding of disparity solidifies white supremacy. Isaiah doesn't know yet that he lives in a world where his melanated body is dictated by the decisions of non-melanated bodies. Kimora Harrington is the mother of eight-year-old Isaiah. Kimora, thank you so much for talking. Thank you very, very much. This year, 38% of Hartford children who entered the lottery did not get in. That's according to the Connecticut Mirror. But in January, there was a settlement in the Chef desegregation case. The settlement opens up more spots for Hartford students in magnet schools, and it switches the lottery system to focus on a family's socioeconomic status. Coming up, an influx of border protection agents have been sent to sanctuary cities around the country, plus the many portraits of old white men in government buildings. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents have been deployed to Boston from across the country. The acting director of ICE, that's Immigration and Customs Enforcement, says the agents are needed to help with enforcement in sanctuary cities. WBUR immigration reporter Shannon Dooling joins us to talk about it. Shannon, welcome back to the show. Hi, Morgan. Thanks for having me. Matthew Albentz, the acting director of ICE, says this move is in response to, quote, resource challenges stemming from sanctuary city policies. What exactly does he mean by that? 
So what he's referring to essentially is uh, things have gotten harder for immigration and customs enforcement deportation officers who work in so-called sanctuary cities. Um, These are communities that uh, purposefully limit the interaction between local law enforcement, local police, and ICE. Um, And they do that, you know, for a number of reasons. But basically, it's because they say that uh, police officers and local law enforcement should not be enforcing federal immigration laws. And so uh, with this move, Albans is um, essentially saying, we need backup. Uh, We're no longer able to uh, pick up people on immigration violations in sort of what they would refer to as safe spaces like courtrooms and police stations, because uh, ICE is not seeing Seeing the amount of cooperation that it used to see from local law enforcement and court officials. And so they're um, now being forced, uh, in Albans's word, to uh, go out into the community and make what they would refer to as sort of more high stakes encounters with, with uh, people that they're looking to arrest for immigration violations. What kind of backup are we talking about? Are we talking SWAT teams in Boston? Are they planning raids? What does it look like? So uh, what I'm told by a Department of Homeland Security official in Boston is that some of the Customs and Border Protection agents and officers who have been deployed here uh, to Boston, and it's unclear how many uh, have been positioned here in Boston, uh, but they come from all over the country, including um, some from the southern border. Uh, But some of them do have uh, what is called tactical training, uh, SWAT team training, whether or not this is going to be a a matter of, you know, Customs and Border Protection agents sort of banging down doors and uh, using those SWAT-like tactics with every arrest, that remains to be seen. Uh, But what we do know is that many of them do have that type of training. So we're seeing this influx of uh, Border Patrol agents. Uh, I'm wondering, what does it typically look like? What does Border Patrol typically look like in a city like Boston? Well, so we have to remember that U.S. Customs and Border Protection is just one of uh, the several agencies that falls under the Department of Homeland Security. And so when anyone travels in and out of the country, you know, if you're coming back to the U.S. from a trip abroad, uh, you would encounter a U.S. Customs and Border Protection officer at at the customs uh, line when you're trying to reenter the country. Uh, They're sort of protecting the flow at what we would call official ports of entry, so Boston's Logan International airport, uh, the, you know, the seaport here in Boston. Then we have what what are referred to as uh, border patrol agents. So those are the folks um, that sort of roam in between the official ports of entry. And so actually, um, you know, states like Vermont and New Hampshire that have an international border with Canada and Maine, um, they would see more of those bo- border patrol agents that, again, roam the, the, the land in between the official ports of entry. So to have them um, sort of stationed with ICE, with the the uh, immigration officials who are in the community making the immigration violation arrests in the interior of the country, not at the borders. That is a, a unique position for these folks. We're taping this on a Wednesday morning. So up until this point, have there been any raids or unusual arrests in Boston from from these Border Patrol agents? 
Not that we've been uh, made aware of. Um, to According, actually, to a, a, an ICE official, uh, there have been a, a few arrests of, of what Immigration and Customs Enforcement refers to as immigration fugitives. So these are individuals who uh, are wanted on immigration violations. Um, you know, there have been arrests. These happen every day, quite frankly, in, in and around Boston and throughout the country. Um, but according to this ICE official, Uh, The Customs and Border Protection agents and officials who have been deployed here have not been involved in in those particular arrests uh, yet. Do we have any sense of how long these U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents will stick around in Boston? Well, uh, I have not been able to independently confirm that, but according to the New York Times, there are about a total of 100 or so being deployed to larger sanctuary cities throughout the the U.S., places like Boston, San Francisco, Houston, New Orleans, to name a few. Uh, And again, according to the New York Times, the timing of this deployment of this special mission was uh, anywhere between February and May of this year. Before I let you go, there's another immigration enforcement story happening in New England that you've covered recently. Um, There was a lawsuit filed in the U.S. District Court in Connecticut, and it basically alleges that ICE's acting director, again, that's Matthew Albans, is serving in the position illegally. So what exactly are the lawyers arguing? Well, basically, um, they're saying that uh, according to federal statute, the president is only uh, allowed to uh, place acting directors into federal uh, agency positions for a, a certain amount of time, essentially. And so uh, the Department of Homeland Security's ICE branch, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, hasn't had a Senate-confirmed uh, appointed leader in three years. And so essentially what this lawsuit is arguing is that uh, the the Trump administration, the president, has exhausted his ability to sort of um, place the, the temporary acting director uh, in a leadership role. And as of August 1st, 2019, uh, the president should have uh, already um, put forward a, a nomination for a permanent um, a permanent head of ICE. Because the president did not do that, uh, lawyers for a Connecticut-based immigration organization are saying, as of August 1st, Matthew Albans um, is serving illegally as the head of, of ICE. And so essentially, uh, stemming from that argument, they are claiming that any immigration enforcement or action that took place after August 1st that Matthew Albans, you know, basically directed into enforcement uh, is unlawful because he, as of August 1st, has been serving illegally in that position. So uh, it's it's a it's a bit of a stretch in terms of an argument, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in Connecticut District Court. Um, according to ICE officials, when we reported on this last week, uh, they're not able to comment on pending litigation, but they will have to make some sort of uh, retort uh, in court. So we'll keep an eye on those documents. Shannon Dooling is an immigration reporter for WBUR in Boston. Shannon, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Have you ever stopped to look at the art in your local government building and to think about who is represented and if it reflects the community? 
Well, some politicians in Vermont have started taking a closer look at the art that hangs on the walls of the state house, the place where lawmakers conduct the people's business, which also happens to be one of the most popular museums in the state. And they've noticed a theme. Virtually all of the building's frame portraits are of old white men. Vermont Public Radio's Peter Hirschfeld has more. Addison County Senator Ruth Hardy and I are standing in the lobby of the Vermont State House. Hardy has agreed to give me a tour of the building's artwork, and we don't have to walk far to begin finding what we're after. I mean, one of the most prominent features as you're walking down the halls is the art. Right. There are paintings everywhere in the State House, um, portraits, and a few landscape paintings like this one that we're passing right now, but most of them are portraits of governors, like this one, who is, can you read that? Looks like Carol S. Page, who served from 1890 to 1892. So most of them are governors who served for two years, um, uh, one term. Occasionally there are more longer-term governors, but many of them I've never heard of, and I would guess that most Vermonters have never heard of them. The portraits, and there are scores of them, also feature the faces of old military figures. But there's one thing almost all of them have in common. The vast majority of paintings in the State House are of older white men. And Hardy says that's a problem. We call it the people's house, but when you walk in here, it looks like the old white guy's house. So I really want to make sure that we create a, a State House where people of all ages, all races and genders feel welcome and see themselves, literally see themselves or people who look like them on the walls. Hardy says she's especially worried about the thousands of students that visit here every year. So she's introduced legislation that would create a task force, a task force that would diversify statehouse portraiture by adding paintings of women and people of color who have, quote, significantly contributed to Vermont's unique history. State House curator David Sheet says he appreciates the sentiment. We need to tell the stories that make sense in the context of this building, and we need to do a better job of it. There's no question about that. Sheets, who's been the curator for more than 30 years, says the demography of the portraiture here was not intentional. So it's not as though anybody had a, a plan to fill the building with white men. It just happens to be that the past 200 years, there have been principally white men as governors of Vermont. But while Sheet says he appreciates the need to diversify state house art generally, he has some reservations about changes to its portraiture. So if we go beyond governors, we begin to get into slippery slopes of all kinds. And Sheet says, for him at least, looking at the portraiture is not the defining experience here. So it's part of the wallpaper, frankly. And I don't find uh, little kids wondering about the wallpaper. It's easy to say that people ignore the wallpaper when your own experience of that wallpaper is that it's inclusive of you. That's Sarah Lorson. I'm an assistant professor in the History of Art and Architecture Department, and I am the curator of Asian art at the Middlebury College Museum of Art. Lorson, to be clear, is a fan of David Sheets's. I don't envy him the position he's in. It's a difficult one. But she says the images the Statehouse places on its walls communicate the values of the institution. And when virtually all of those images are of older white men, Lorson says kids take notice. That creates this feedback loop where, as adults, they might not 
see themselves in the state house. They might not choose political careers. Nicole Martins is an associate professor in the media school at Indiana University. She spent more than a decade studying the social and psychological impact of media on young people in this idea that girls or children of color may feel alienated or disillusioned when they don't see themselves represented in media. Martin says it has some scientific backing. When you are consistently putting the same kind of message, which in this case is a message about you know, white people and white men, right, and their stories, that you're, that the implicit message is that those are the only stories worth telling. Back at the State House, Senator Ruth Hardy is looking up at one of only three portraits here that does feature a woman. It's a brightly colored oil painting of Madeleine Cunin, Vermont's first and only woman governor. She's amazing. She's one of my political mentors and role models. I often will stop at her portrait and just look at her or, you know, sort of get get good good vibes from her if I'm having a bad day. Paintings in some of the other rooms in the State House evoke a much different feeling for Hardy, like a legislative conference room on the first floor where large paintings of stern-faced white men hang on all four walls. And it feels almost oppressive, like they're staring at me saying, what are you doing here? What, why are you making this decision? You don't really belong. And it's, it, it is oppressive. Hardy says it doesn't help that one of those men, former Governor Percival Clements, vetoed a bill that would have granted women the right to vote in Vermont. And it's just a reminder that he thought I shouldn't be here and that we shouldn't get to vote. And that's, that's hard to be reminded of every day. Hardy isn't looking to tear down Clement's portrait, or any others for that matter, but she says those former governors aren't the only important figures in Vermont's political history. So I think reconceiving what our concept of history is, that it's not just the white man who's sitting in the governor's chair, but that it is the citizens of the state who are coming to this building to try to enact change and to try to be part of the legislative process. Sheets inaugurated a new exhibit recently called Women in the Vermont State House. Hardy, though, says this is about more than a single spot in the State House where women get their due. What Hardy says she wants is true integration. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Peter Hirschfeld. After the break, we go ice climbing in southern New England, and we meet a veteran who's going back to college at the age of 83. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Ice climbing is more popular in states like Vermont and New Hampshire, but there are still some good spots to climb in southern New England. So despite the warm winter, Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill grabbed some ropes and ice picks and he headed to a secret place in the forest where it's cold enough to climb. Paige Cox and I can relate. When it comes to climbing ice, we're both freaked out. It's water. <laughs> it melts. I'm terrified. <laughs> Cox started rock climbing about a decade ago and is the vice president of the Ragged Mountain Foundation based in Southington. For me, this is my first time going up anything that isn't stairs or a ladder or a hill. But the defiant spirit of climbers has always appealed to me. So I met up with some. 
Cox and Matt Conroy. He's general manager of a climbing gym in Fairfield and our guide today. He gets us geared up. Helmet, harness, belay and rappel setup, ice tools for climbing the ice. We are going to have ice climbing boots on, which are rigid and waterproof. Also lots of rope. We toss it over our packs and head out. Let's go for a walk. We're in northern Connecticut, but I'm not saying where. Climbers worry that if word gets out too far about the good spots, they'll get overrun and lose all their ice. Today, our approach is tough, an uphill zigzag around rocks and fallen trees. As we walk, the sounds of civilization fade, and reality transforms into a vision Paige Cox pulls from fantasy. Have you ever seen Lord of the Rings? (laughs) Um, So It's very big boulders, and it's kind of cool because all the rocks look like they've just had a layer of... Um, ice just kind of put over it and it's just dripping all around all sides of the rocks. So it looks really almost prehistoric. We still have a big climb ahead of us, about 200 feet of hillside over boulders that could fill up a studio apartment. To our shoes, we attach things called crampons. Bing, that's a good sound. Crampons give you traction, 10 spikes on the bottom for walking and two pointed forward for jamming into and stepping up those big icy rocks. Conroy shows us how. You want to drop your heel more than you think you need to, and that's going to engage those front points. And it will sound like that. We'll also use ropes. I get tied in, and I need my hands, so for a few minutes, I turn off the mic. It's a good thing, otherwise you'd hear me whimpering. The climb is painful, I slip, I bang my knees, the muscles in my arms burn, but slowly, I make my way to the top. Sort of. Well, we're at the top of the first pitch. Oh, God. Okay. So the first rope length of climbing. There's more. Don't you worry. Conroy tosses my rope down to Cox. It's her turn to climb. All right, Paige, you're on belay. You may climb when ready. Cox moves quickly. Before we know it, she's hanging with her ice picks just a few feet below us. Conroy gives her some options for where to stick the tools. Yeah, yeah get one right there. That was good. Oops. Your tool does not need to be in very deep to be effective. That's a good one. But when you're newer, you do tend to have a habit of lifting up the handle as you move up, um, which will dislodge the tool if it's anywhere other than, like, the deepest stick. A few more, and she's there. I did it! How do you feel? Oh, I feel actually really awesome and like I was afraid for no reason. But I'm still afraid. Ahead of us is the final climb. It's a wall of ice, about 20 to 30 feet high. Conroy takes his ice picks and begins to stick them into the frozen wall. Oh, that's a good sound. As he climbs, lumps of ice spout water like holes in a barrel. Oh, you're getting soaked, man. But Conroy quickly makes it up. And now I'm next. You ready to get tied in? I think so. There's water everywhere. I stash my mic, shuffle to the wall, and climb. It felt like it took three hours to move a few feet. To be honest, it was a complete disaster. I stopped halfway up when I ran into a problem. What did you say it was? It was my first epic? Your first epic. Like an epic is just when, like, things go wrong. Like, say, a rookie climber who doesn't tie his shoes right. The thing that went wrong is your boot came off and filled with water. Um, you know, it's a thing that happens. Like, it's fun to have fun. Is it? Stories. Does it ever happen? Well, sorry, no. I mean, as far, I've never, have you ever seen that before? I've never seen that happen before. Um... <laughs> I'll be honest. This is why hiking with experienced climbers matters. After the boot flew off, Cox lent me some dry socks from her pack. And collectively, we all decided to bail. It was getting dark, and Conroy says there wasn't any reason to push it. 
I think we're all pretty close to the edge at all times. You just don't always realize it. You know, we start to layer in things like ice climbing and being wet. And uh, you need to bring the edge a little closer. And it's not a question of, you know, the extreme sport. It's a question of, I want to climb this ice, but I want to do it in a manner that, you know, allows me to go home again. In my case, bruised and with frozen pants. But safe, feeling accomplished, and like, maybe I'll try it again without my radio gear. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. Hank Bolden is 83 years old. He's also an undergraduate at the Hart School of Music in Connecticut. Bolden's an atomic vet. He's one of thousands of soldiers exposed to secret nuclear weapons tests during the Cold War. And Connecticut Public Radio's Diane Orson has the story of his remarkable journey. In 1955, Hank Bolden was in his late teens and stationed in California. One day, the young musician was told he'd been chosen to participate in a special military exercise. I had no idea what I was selected for. He was flown to Desert Rock, Nevada, where he joined hundreds of other soldiers from across the country. He didn't know anyone else there. A day later, they were marched out to trenches. In the trench that I was in, there was nothing but soldiers that looked like me, all, all black faces. A countdown began. When it got down to zero, that's when the big flash went off. That big flash was the dropping of the atomic bomb for the testing. And they had us placed 2.8 miles from ground zero, not only in the path of the fallout, but in the predicted path of the fallout. Then came a wave of heat and dust. And there weren't any goggles that, that we had to place over our eyes. just had a helmet. And our arms, supposedly, to protect your eyes, and you visibly see see your bones. And you visibly see uh, other folks' skeletons, you know, that's what I saw, yes. After the tests, Bolden and the other soldiers had to swear an oath of secrecy never to talk about what had happened, not to family, doctors, or to each other. Violation of the oath was punishable by 10 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Bolden says for decades, he never talked. But as years went on, he was diagnosed with bladder cancer, multiple myeloma, and subcapsular cataracts. He began to worry that his health problems might be connected to what he'd seen. There were a lot of tests in this period. Alex Wellerstein is an historian of nuclear weapons at the Stevens Institute of Technology. He's speaking by Skype. These are really tests to see what happens to soldiers if they see a live nuclear weapon go off. Can they still be commanded? Do they become hysterical and no longer take orders? Do they become so overcome with fear that they can't do anything? At the same time, military commanders were not fully aware of the risks of exposing soldiers to ionizing radiation, says Wellerstein. Slowly, veterans who'd been unwittingly used as human research subjects began quietly sharing their stories. Congress lifted the oath of secrecy in 1996. Today, those who can demonstrate their atomic veterans and have developed one of several specific medical conditions are eligible for compensation. Last year, after receiving his compensation, Hank Bolden decided to go back to college. When he got out of the Army back in the 50s, he'd enrolled at the Hart School of Music but never got a degree. I dropped out of college to go on the road playing music. And I like to complete what what I've started. 
So the 83-year-old auditioned for renowned saxophonist Javon Jackson, director of Hearts Jazz Studies Division. It was apparent to me that he is a practitioner, I like to say, a musician who can do it. But he wants to come in and learn a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of music, which I think is um, something to be in awe of. Bolden was accepted and awarded a scholarship. He says he's come to terms with what happened decades ago when he was a young soldier. I have no regrets about being involuntarily volunteered because actually has played a part into my being here now where I'm at. As for sitting in classes alongside students one quarter his age, Bolden says, well, music will keep you young. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Diane Orson. A.E. Hotchner was an author, a playwright, and a friend of Ernest Hemingway. And with another friend, Paul Newman, he co-founded Newman's Own. Hotchner recently died in Westport, Connecticut at the age of 102. And WSHU's Davis Donovan has this remembrance. Hotchner grew up in St. Louis. His memoirs of his childhood became the Steven Soderbergh movie King of the Hill. He spoke about the difficulty of writing to his alma mater, Washington University, in a series to mark his 100th birthday. We know about everything that happened in our lives. That doesn't mean that we can dissect it emotionally, spiritually, entertainingly into something that will move somebody who sees the words on a page. Hotchner met Hemingway in Cuba. The two stayed friends until Hemingway's death. They hunted, drank, and attended bullfights together. Hotchner told his friend's story in the 1966 book, Papa Hemingway. In 1982, Hotchner helped his friend and Westport neighbor Paul Newman bottle some of his homemade salad dressing. Newman and Hotchner remembered later in a video for the Newman's Own Foundation. Really all started as a joke. We, we started passing the salad dressing out at Christmas time, singing Christmas carols, and about six weeks later, people were knocking on the doors asking for refills, so we decided to go into business. We kept making this fun. It was, it was just fun. Newman's Own has since given over $550 million to charity. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Davis Donovan. That's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and review us on iTunes. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Matthew Reed. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio. And a special welcome to new members of the Collaborative, WCAI and WGBH. 